Hi, welcome to another episode of Infinite Leaders Live. I'm Louis Keynes, and after a, a little break, we're back uh, with some more episodes and some great guests ahead of us. Um, our why hasn't changed, and it's still as simple as ever, to be better educators and to be better humans. We want to support and encourage infinite learning, regardless of age, rank, role, responsibility, uh, whatever kind of organization you work in, and hopefully we can inspire and help people to be willing to listen and learn and be better. And we're very fortunate to speak to great people that help us along the way. Alan's in the desert. How are you doing, Alan? Yeah, cheers, Lewis. Just into Saudi Arabia for two weeks and enjoyed the short break that we've had on our show. It's, it's really given us time to reflect upon the fantastic guests that we've had. And we will continue to focus on the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses, real life lessons from real life people with real life experience. And we still don't have any jingles or gimmicks as yet. Maybe we'll, we will do in future, but for the minute, we're just as raw as episode one and, and we're learning as we go. We appreciate, as ever, the phenomenal level of feedback that we get, both positive and constructive. We very much believe in what we do. We live and breathe wanting to be better and wanting to learn as we go. So please do get in touch. You can find us on Instagram, YouTube and Twitter and at theinfinitelearners.com. Click subscribe or like us and that'll help us to reach more people. So just ahead of introducing today's guest, again, please listen, learn and share with all your colleagues and friends and uh, Alan will do the usual introducing. Let's go, Al. Yeah, get your pens and papers ready. There's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom coming out of the show today. Always gems, always. Always. Now, Susie Stevens is the manager of the University of Canterbury's Child Wellbeing Research Institute in New Zealand and is subsequently interested in research on well-being. Her research focuses on movement, pleasure, the body, and how learning occurs with the whole body, not just the mind. Her PhD thesis developed pedagogy for movement pleasure, and she currently works with schools, national bodies, government groups, and international organizations. She shares her expertise in the areas of physical activity, well-being, and movement pleasure, and the learning environments in which they are situated. So Susie, great to have you on the show. It's awesome to be here. Thank you so much. A PhD in pleasure, Susie, what's that all about? <laughs> I, why is it that everybody starts with this? I mean, it's great. I, I really, really love it. I think that, um, that it's, it's definitely a topic for discussion. And uh, I got really frustrated that a, a lot of what had been done uh, regarding pleasure and movement pleasure was around endorphins. It was this real physiological response to exercise. And it's way bigger than that. So I found a lot, of, a lot of research that targeted a specific area. So some that was on this physiological stuff, uh, some that was really uh, dedicated to psychology and flow states. And I wanted to try and mash them together and think about movement pleasure and why we do what we do and, and, um, and how that feels as a whole human being rather than in these pieces. Um, and so I studied... Uh, some physical education classes for a long period of time, about eight to nine months, and watched and celebrated with people um, how they experienced movement pleasure. It was top notch. <laughs> and, and how is that linking with what you're doing now at, at the university? I think that for me, um, I always wanted to do that because uh, when I when I started, so I originated as a PE teacher. So I did a, a Bachelor of Education in PE and I was always involved with health education and outdoor education as well. Um, and I was always in these roles 
where I wanted to challenge the norm or I wanted to think about things differently. And I was in um, some traditional physical education departments and I decided that I didn't really like some of the structures that were imposed upon some of the classes. Um, and I actually ended up teaching in a Rudolf Steiner school with the Waldorf curriculum because I found experiential learning and learning with the whole body actually more relevant to me and to my learners. Um, and so I think that my PhD came out of my experiences of movement, not being able to actually label them within a psychological domain or a physiological domain alone, and thinking about that in terms of more of a philosopher, uh, like a philosophy or a sociological um, interpretation as well. So I wanted something more, essentially. I felt like I wasn't getting it. I felt like I wasn't getting in schools, and I wanted to try and nut that out and in a, in a PhD so um, it was that's kind of where it came from um, and yeah yeah does that does that kind of explain yeah, no, it makes sense I think just to contextualize that for us Sue give us a sort of idea of the difference between what you describe as traditional PE and what you describe as learning with the whole body and, and what was the transition yeah. from one to the other that's epic. Um, look, for me, traditionally, I mean, physical education in New Zealand came out of a, a very Western idea of, of what sport and movement should look like. So it was quite Eurocentric. It's quite like England and, um, and Europe. And it was the idea around uh, movement being sports-related contexts. And it was quite traditional in the sense that there was an outcome and it was a health-based outcome. So you did physical education to, to manipulate the body, to train the body, to shape and guide the body. And you did physical education for health reasons alone. But we, we've changed a lot since then. And also we have knowledge that is available to us now that educates us around the fact that physical education is actually a whole lot more than that. We also have really complex cultures and movement cultures that exist today that we, I think, uh, by using traditional contexts, we underprepare our kids, our students, for these really messy and really difficult contexts that exist later on in life. And I think we need we need bigger um, bigger skill sets to bring to that. And I think we need to look at things differently. So the way I see the whole body is that the mind and the body are not separate. Uh, that we don't have this dualistic and, and this um, really narrow interpretation of what physical education is. I think that it should be founded in, in well-being and well-being consisting of not just the physical, but also the mental and the emotional, the social domains and the spiritual domains about what makes us a mover and why we connect to that context. And, and sometimes when I say um, spiritual, and I know New Zealand uses this word quite a bit, we're not talking about religion here. So for some people, that's really difficult to move past. But um, but, re but religion could, could be part of it. But spirituality is kind of that who you are as a person, finding yourself, finding your place where you connect. So if you are a rugby player, for an example, and you've played rugby all your life and you define yourself as a rugby player, then rugby playing is part of your spirituality. It's who you are. It's who you identify as and it's who you want to be. Now, if you become injured 
and you can't play rugby anymore, then spirituality is, is going to suffer in those regards. It's not, it's not necessarily the, the physical component, that injury alone, that's actually going to damage the way that you view movement. It's going to be the fact that you can't connect to how that made you as a person or that whole person. So that's how it is kind of some, some bigger picture things that uh, when I'm talking about the whole body and moving as a whole person and learning about movement cultures as a whole person. So spirituality very much links there to identity. Would that be fair? Yeah, ab absolutely. So identity and, and connecting to bigger things in that context. It's like a surfer. Um, I surf and I surf for numerous reasons. I surf because I love the physicality of surfing uh, and I'm, I'm learning. It's a skill that I find quite challenging and I love, um, I love being in the water. But for me, it's the calmness of the ocean. It's the connection to the ocean as well. And that's a real spiritual thing. You can't identify that as being... Uh, something physical that's not uh, that's me finding a calm place um, so so it's bringing together all of those elements is what makes what makes something a, a context meaningful for me and that's different for all our kids so you know if we think about how we all learned movement Lewis how you learned and and Alan how you learned or what you connect to they're all going to be very different things and so to prescribe one way of doing something to a group of 30 kids or 60 kids or 90 kids you know if we only if we only expose them to how we learned or what we know as as one teacher uh, then are we doing them a disservice uh, in in not allowing them to explore other contexts in those regards so yeah, yeah. how important is identity as part of physical education well i think it's massive um i th i think it's really important for lifelong moving i mean we talk about finding ourselves uh through movement it, your body you know you you have you kind of, you live and breathe as a whole body and you have one of those, you know, that is you, that, that is you, you don't have a vehicle, you're not just a brain that's walking around on legs that gets you from A to B. I mean, you move as a whole being. So identity is part of that. You identify, you identify as that living, breathing, moving body. But how society accepts that or society shaping of identities is a big part. So if we are, you know, if you think about the isms, if we're racist, um, if we're sexist, then what we do is we provide this, this shaping that doesn't allow for people to identify in the way that they feel safe or they actually belong. And so that they're, they're not really sure how to how to kind of establish identity as a living, breathing, moving body. It's really difficult for them if they don't fit within that context that we shape. So I think this is why it's really important to really think about um, our, our modeling, our role modeling, and how comfortable we are with our own identity and allowing others' identities to shine through in those classroom spaces. So giving children the freedom and creativity to be themselves and express themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think as well, sometimes in, um, in PE, we tend to shut um, behaviours down that, that don't look and feel like they belong. And for an example, okay, I, I tell you this example, um, I'm really privileged to have a look at 
some um, some classrooms and through my role with Physical Education New Zealand and, and the subject association, I get to go into people's classes and have a look and, and um, spread, you know, good practice. Um, and I saw a, a classroom and they were playing outside and there were some kids doing some cartwheels and they were, they were really joyful. They were engaging in movement. They were playing so well. It was fabulous. And a teacher shut that down because they're like, whoa, 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 stop. You know, everybody quiet, come in. We've got to do our mindfulness session. Now, I'm not against mindfulness. Don't get me wrong, okay? Like, power to the mindfulness, all right? Love it. But those kids were mindful, okay? They were, they were living and breathing examples of what was so centering for them. They were playful. You know, there was a kid that was up a tree. There were a couple that were playing really, really actively and involving, you know, a wide group of really different human beings. And you kind of look at that setting and you say, man, did we... Do, have we got something so wrong where we're shutting down it, the actual behaviors and, the, and the, the actual mindfulness because we felt like we had the right solution or we felt like we had the right way of doing something? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think it's, I mean, it's difficult, right? It's, it's, it's difficult to make these decisions, these pedagogical decisions as teachers. But I, I think the more that we're reflective about what we're doing and the actions that we're taking in the classroom, I think the stronger our practice can be. Yeah, Susie, you, you talk very much about the old traditional sport-driven models, which is, is effectively what myself and Lewis probably grew up in in the UK and, and certainly how we've probably taught for the first 15 years of our career. Uh, we've just started moving away from it. I'm wondering about what was your tipping point when you talked about you not being fitting into that traditional model and then going down a values-driven line. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I look, I learned when I went through school too, I had a real sport-driven model um, and I really engaged with sport. I love sport and I was good at sport, so I kind of fit in in those regards. Um, but I think the tipping point for me, Alan, was probably coming across some students that didn't like sport but wanted to move. Yeah. And they had no idea how to do that because this, th these were some of the findings that came out of my PhD were that what we tend to do with movement pleasure is realistically you have to conform to the environment to experience pleasure in physical education. Now, what I mean by that is, is pleasure itself is often sportified and you have to be successful. So if you're not an athlete, if you don't prescribe to the contexts from a traditional setting like rugby or in New Zealand cricket or netball uh, or football, um, if you don't prescribe to that or you, you can't exhibit skills in those ways, then you get labeled as being not very good at PE. Now, I don't think that's right. I think, you know, being physically educated is so much more than just being good at sport or just being physical or just displaying physicality or behaviorism in class. And what I, what the other, I mean, the other lens I bring to that is that's, we've got to realize that that's only one view. So 
you know, sports that we think uh, everybody does, that's only our one lens, right? Okay, and throughout the world, there's lots of different sports. So if we have kids in our classroom from multicultural backgrounds, in New Zealand, uh, our indigenous culture is Māori. And so we have uh, lots of indigenous games from a te ao Māori perspective, which are equally as awesome in terms of working together as a team, uh, the, the performance elements that are required, tactical knowledge and skills, um, finding the place within the game, but they have been marginalized in the past because there has been a predominance to stick to sport that has come from this Western point of view. So I guess my main point around that is, is that when talking to students that don't fit with that sporty context, with that typified kind of um, traditional sport, for me, it's a no-brainer. Like, those that are in sport are going to be in sport. They're going to stay in sport. Okay, they will be participating in clubs, they will be outside of the school space, they will be driven, they will have families that are engaged in the sporting context. Those, we should really be thinking about PE for those that aren't those people. Yeah, I fully agree with you and, and, and that's sort of the way we're thinking in terms of the infinite leaders and our approaches in our current schools. That 10% that, that play for the teams, they look after themselves, as you've just said. It's the others, and it is a large majority. It's a, it could be up to around 90% that we've almost forgotten about in our lives. And I, and I think I have some, some, some real uh, reflection periods. I'm thinking, how many kids have I switched off rather than switched yeah. on? And if, if, you could, if you could just give our, our listeners an idea, how can schools or departments, how can they really encourage participation in those that aren't defined as sporty? Mm. It's, I mean, that's a really good question. And I think, Alan, it's so healthy for us to acknowledge like our journeys. It's taken a really long time. Like I, I really appreciate you, you, you know, coming to the fore and saying, oh, how many people did I turn off PE? Because I remember when I first started and I taught exactly the same way that I had been taught myself. And I think that's really typical of teachers. Um, and I, I have a, a graduate class um, and I said to them the other day, they said, how do we know what, what to do? You know, what's, what are the key things I need to do as a teacher? And I said, the key thing is, is if you're doing the same thing in 10 years that I told you in class yesterday, I'm going to be horrified. So, uh, I, you know, I think that that learning and that changing and that growing is so important. So that's just a comment to, to what you, uh, your acknowledgement, Alan, of your growth and development. And I think that's really vital. Um, getting back to your, your question around participation and encouraging participation for the non-participant or the, um, the person that doesn't relate to that context, um, I think we need to get really creative and I think we also need to listen like really genuinely listen like ask, ask your kids like ask your students if you, if you genuinely go in there and say look, what do you want to do? You know, how do you like to move? Why, why do your family not move? Um, why do you not move? Or, or how can we work together as a class to get people moving? There's a really cool, um, there's a really cool part of our national curriculum in New Zealand, which is around 
the societal aspect of participation. So it's around healthy communities and the whole strand of that curriculum balances out the physicality and the health side of things, whether how do our actions influence others and how do others influence our actions. And I think that that is a really important part of physical education. So physical education, not as an individual where we are blaming everybody for their own inability to move or their own dislikes uh, or their own lack of engagement, but we're also looking at the wider picture as well. So, you know, in terms of participation, I'd be doing probably three things. I would be looking at myself as a teacher and I would say, am I doing anything in this space, which is encouraging people to stand back? Am I doing anything in this space that could be threatening? Am I behaving in a way that is marginalizing a group? Uh, what is the language that I am using in a classroom? Is this affecting how people want to be a part of this? I would be really asking myself those critical questions. Another part, I would look at the culture of the class and the dynamics of the class. And I would say, and I would ask the same sorts of questions around that class. What is my class culture? What are my expectations of this class? How are we working together as a class? What are we trying to achieve as a class? Um, and, really, and really put that on that wider group. And then I would be also talking to that individual and I would be asking and asking them some questions and listening to their responses. Um, and I think if you are reflective across the board like that, I, I think that you will probably stumble across your own answers to why people aren't participating. <laughs> I think you've made a really good point there, Susie, with you've sort of, to summarise, suggested a three-step approach to really trying to create participation that students enjoy from teacher actions and language, <clears throat> excuse me, to culture and dynamics and expectations, and then to actually treating each individual with some respect and trying to find out their personal background. One, one of the, the thoughts I had as you were going through that was that first part about the teacher actions is probably, in my opinion, going to be the most difficult for teachers to really to get to get to grips with and to come to terms with because what you're actually asking there is for a teacher that might have been doing this 5, 10, 20, 25 years to stop and reflect and be really self-critical to accept that they might have made mistakes along that way and, and try and identify what those mistakes were then to have a willingness to not harbour that negatively but to use that as a motivation to move forward and, and to use that knowledge in the right way and in a positive manner and then to create an action plan with their team and with the people that they trust to go actually and move forward and do that. What, that that's quite tough, isn't it, for, for somebody to do? Now, how, how, how could we start that process for a teacher that's listening to this at the moment? How can that process begin? I, I, that's, I, it is really tough. It, it is really tough. I come at this from two sides. I kind of come at it from the side of we need to wrap around. There has to be mentorship. Right. If this, if somebody has never self-reflected before, then that mentorship has to be there. Uh, we have to make sure that our, our incoming new teachers, uh, our graduates, are really supported through a proper mentorship program, through uh, support in that school setting, um, connection with those external from that school. So a moderation process or a mentoring process outside of that school space, um, and also support from uh, like 
ministries and in, in government around mentorship in schools. I think that that's really important on one side. Then I also think um, that if we were in a different profession, uh, and I want to throw out the medical profession because I know a couple of people in the medical profession, and if they get given a new drug, for an example, or, or some new findings come out of play, and those findings say that this drug now harms people, okay, they've got to change their bloody practices within 24 hours. I mean, you can't just keep pushing the drug because you were like, well, shit, I learned about the drug like five years ago, and I feel like I still want to use that drug, like just because it makes sense for me, or it's easy, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking I'm just going to keep using it. I mean, they would be hauled, they, they would be hauled into lawyers' offices, they would be, I, I it just, you wouldn't hear about it, okay? So when a new drug comes out, or there's a change that, that comes, there is evidence. There is evidence that comes to that. There's literature. There is support for that change in practice. It is no different in teaching other than that we don't see an immediate effect on a life. But we could actually be having an effect on a life. So when we think about our influence, our ripple effect as a teacher, you know, we we are no different. If we're doing something that is archaic and there is evidence to prove that what we are doing is harming or damaging some students in that learning process and there are better ways to do it, then we kind of got to take that on board. I mean, it's our duty in the profession to take that on board. And if we can't change, if that upsets us, then there's a little bit of... of there's a little bit of come on. I mean, it's, this is this is our profession. We've got to uphold this profession as teachers. So I, I see two. I see the mentorship being really important, the wraparound and the support for people to fail and fail safely uh, and be able to grow from that. But then I also see this other part where actually there are a lot of excuses out there. And, and I also think that there is a level of, um, you know, autonomy. We have to be responsible. There's this responsibility to the profession as well that we need to consider. Do you think there might be um, the cause for some teachers to feel threatened by changes and threatened by the fact that the, the profession's evolving? Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, there's threats from both sides. Like, I, I think uh, in one way we can be really ageist and we can go, oh, your knowledge doesn't matter anymore, you know, because you are in this age bracket and you have nothing to offer. And I think that we, some of us are really ageist and we do need to check ourselves that we're not just throwing the baby out with bathwater, so to speak. We're not just getting rid of stuff because it's, it's old and has been. Um, but flip side of that, yeah, it, change is inevitable. It's really the only constant. It's always going to be about uh, about a growth and a development and learning that happens. And I think, uh, I think education has to be about learning. I, I, I mean, it is just, it's so hypocritical to, to not learn and grow uh, in a profession where we are trying to get humans to learn and grow. Uh, yeah, not rocket science, maybe. I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it resonates totally, Susie. Inton. I love that education is about learning. And I remember back to your, your webinar in March and you talked about hashtag ENPE. 
I don't know if you want to explain a little bit more about that and how it links to learning and we're not just fitness instructors. Yeah, look, I, I um, when COVID hit, we in New Zealand, we got really excited by a lot of online initiatives and, and I love that and, and so did a lot of people around, around the world and we had really differing displays of what physical education looked like and I felt like in New Zealand, we struggled, like not everybody, I mean that's, that's a bit of a, a homogenous grouping there, but so not everyone struggled, but, but a lot of people fell back on things that they could do really simply via, um, via the internet. And so that fell back on fitness related contexts where it was, I will show you what to do, you will do it, and you will get fit. And I, I got together with a group of people here in New Zealand and we pulled together from around the nation uh, really good displays of practice that we could use that actually emphasised more than just that fitness, that fitness lesson. And I'm not saying that a fitness lesson isn't appropriate, but it's also not PE. Um, and so that's where hashtag EMPE came from, is that the E part, the education part seemed to be missing. So there was a lot, there were a lot of lessons that came out of this and we saw a lot of um, influences and social media influences that um, capitalized really well, uh, fitness industries that capitalized very well on lockdown and they projected, you know, notions of what it means to be physically educated. Um, and, and I, for some, you know, for some elements of that, getting people moving and getting them engaged, that's great. Um, but also there was a lot of harm done by that because what it did is it took away uh, from opportunities to learn through movement, to sustain that movement. So a lot of people, when lockdown ends, they don't continue those sessions. They haven't learned from those sessions. They've been following somebody in front of them for a good period of time. And, um, and none of that has cemented or changed behaviours long term because the educational element wasn't there. Uh, at, and I think, yeah, I, I think that that's kind of where EMP came from, um, was this notion behind the education seems to be missing. We seem to have gone way back to the 1800s where we had somebody at the front of the class and we had a team of 90 in front of them just following. Um, and I don't think that's what physical education is. Uh, Susie, it's happening across the world. Let me tell you. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and and we're in we're on virtual learning still in Saudi Arabia now until till January, and and it is easy to do that, Susie. It's easy to fall into that because there's little planning involved, and mm -hmm. we're not having to reinvent ourselves. Whereas mm -hmm. if you want to put the hashtag EMPE, you have got to take a step back and spend considerable time planning. I don't know if you could just share some, some real gems of wisdom in what, what can PE teachers do to get that EMPE? Yeah, look, I think um, we, what we did is, is we published a couple of resources around EMPE and what it looked like for a New Zealand context, a New Zealand curriculum. And I understand that what I say is privileged in, the, in that sense. So, you know, I'm coming at this from, from a New Zealand brain and from a New Zealand curriculum. Um, I think the E and PE, uh, 
a one-size-fits-all approach is, is not going to be a great thing. And, and we saw this, uh, and I want to use a Joe Wicks example because probably we know, uh, we, most of us know Joe Wicks and, and we were there and, and could see that he was doing very well in this situation. Um, but then there were questions in his chats that started coming up, questioning around things like, you know, this is the same thing for this group as this group, or why won't my child do the activity, or um, how do I how do I change this to meet the needs? And there was no changing or, or modifications of activities to suit different learning, uh, or to be about anything else. Uh, I think that so so for one thing, ENPE is looking at who you have in front of you. You know, I have a very different group of humans in front of me in my classes to you have, Alan, and you, Lewis. So if I took something from the internet, which was a fitness routine, and I used that, and then Lewis used the exact same one, and Alan used the exact same one without modifying that in any way or thinking about your learners, you have eliminated the education part of that. All you are doing is you are prescribing something physical for somebody to achieve. Um, and, and there's also other bigger picture things when it comes to PE. An example of one PE lesson that we did um, and was really successful is we were allowed one walk per day in New Zealand where we could go out of our house over lockdown and we could walk around the block. And I don't know if everybody has that luxury, but we, we were allowed that. We had our senior students uh, get some chalk or get some tape and chalk on the pavements, some hopscotches, some sensory learning pathways to encourage neighborhood children to participate in some different forms of movement when they were walking around the block. Now, what we did is we drew from those lessons of what it felt like to engage in an activity where we were promoting physical activity for a community, for a neighborhood. Um, we spoke about what was available to us in our homes to do physical activity or physical education experiences. So instead of just following a fitness lesson, it was can you create some sort of activity? Can this connect to real life? Um, one thing I did uh, with um, my grads is I got them to create a fire safety plan and enact it, which required a full commando crawl to mm -hmm. all of the exits around their house. Now, it's stuff like that where you go bigger picture uh, this was about fire safety. This was about um, having a lot of fun. This was about educating bigger picture things, critical thinking. It was around, you know, but it was through a movement context, right? Yeah. So it, it, when you think of when you think of planning, you know, if you had if you had your students there in front of you, it shouldn't be any different. Uh, you should. You know, you, you plan for your students when they're there in front of you and you, you know them, you see them, you connect with them. You've got to still try and do that online. And I get that that's hard and I get that, that you know, people are struggling with that and I get that it's been long. And I do acknowledge my privilege in those regards where we had a, a four-week lockdown um, and maybe a couple of weeks either side of that. So maybe about only six weeks of a full lockdown um, where we were planning. It is hard, Susie, but it comes back to what you said earlier about 
you know, the profession is evolving <clears throat> and changing and we've got to change with it. And if that means that we're in distance learning and that's the hand that we've been dealt, then, then we get on with it and we do what we can with the best intentions. I know Alan got battered on Twitter last week for making an assumption that Joe Wicks didn't deserve a, a, an order of a master or an order of the British Empire for being the nation's PE teacher um, as, he, as he tagged himself. Now, whether or not Joe Wicks was a PE teacher is, is, is a debate that I don't think would be very long. I think it's quite clear that he isn't. But, but what he did do was get a nation in, interacting with maybe their family, with giving opportunities for children to get active um, with their brothers, their sisters, their mums and their dads, maybe in front of a TV, which wasn't ideal. But it, it did more than what some maybe schools did at that stage. And I think that's why people jumped onto it. Now, as a school and, and as schools, if we're going to do distance learning and put the E in, in physical education, we, we have to do better than that. And we have to put the opportunity for the children to learn at the forefront of what we're doing. Suddenly, when, when we're online, our classes are now on the kitchen table. You know, yeah. for, for a, a parent or a brother or sister to go and see a PE lesson isn't a trek to school and a finding of where the PE lesson is. It's looking over your brother or sister's shoulder or your son or daughter's shoulder and saying, well, what's happening in your PE lesson. And I think we have to bear that in mind as well, because we can use that as such a powerful tool as educators to show parents how we're doing what we're doing and why we do it in the way that we do, to get those guys on board and show them that PE isn't physical activity. And, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? If we keep do, just delivering physical activity and that's what the parents see, that's what they expect to be good. And then there's changes that do come down the line a little bit later become more difficult. Yeah, I look a hundred percent, Lewis, and I really understand the contention around around the Joe Wicks thing. And the, uh, we had a we had a situation here with our Ministry of Education in New Zealand, and um, and what they did is they we had a, a television channel that was dedicated to learning, uh, which was a great idea, and I think the ministry were very proactive in those regards. Uh, but early on, what they did is they linked that to a fitness club. And they had and they had physical education as a title, and they had linked that to the fitness club doing fitness classes, and that was delivered online. Now, we didn't stand for that. So we got on the phone and we rang the ministry and we spoke with the ministry as a subject organization and said, this doesn't represent physical education. And I know that this is challenging and this is confronting and we understand that what you're doing is trying to support. It's really helpful. But what we're also doing is we're sending a message here that is going to reinforce entrenched behaviours from a really long period of time that we're doing our best to try and smash. And they were receptive. They were receptive. They were responsive. And they changed the programming to suit better, better quality, uh, you know, uh, experiences of physical education. Um, but that took social action. So that wasn't us sitting back and going, oh, they've done it again. I'm going to blame them. You know, it wasn't their fault. So there were people trying to fluster together and pull together in COVID. And it's the same thing as the Joe Wicks. If there is a space there, people will come in and fill that space. So if we, if we don't claim that space and if we don't speak up about that or provide some authority in that space, then really, you know, can, can we... Can we jump up and down? I don't know. Alan. <laughs> Alan's jumping up and down. Alan's jumping up and down. The, the tweet was a bit controversial, but the reason for it is to provoke discussion. Just like yeah. you just 
and, and highlight that PE is so much more. And I'll stand up there and I'll defend my profession to, to the highest point. And I wanted to just to see, and the general public who, who tweeted back <laughs> didn't understand the difference between PE and physical activity. Yeah. The teachers who, who all tweeted were in full support. And I must say, there was only about 10 people that gave me a good roasting. <laughs> <laughs> the the, the, the 10,000 others were in full support of what I've said. <laughs> that, that's um, I love it. I love it. But that roasting, it keeps us humble, right? It really does. I, I, I mean, I love Twitter. I love Twitter for these, re for Alan, these reasons. Alan was the most polite replier on Twitter I've ever heard <laughs> after getting a roasting. He thanked everybody for a response and went on to articulate really well what he is. Now, I want to, just before we start winding it down, Susie, I want to start to to wrap up a little bit how I understand or hopefully try and um, reflect some of the messages you've put across over the last 40 minutes or so into something that's maybe actionable and a toolkit for teachers to move away with. So the big yeah. thing that you're trying to get across with, with EMP is we, we want to try and have children in a position where they enjoy movement and they enjoy movement with their whole bodies. And there's a body and mind connect with that, that that context of the movement is important and, it, and it's relevant depending on where they live and their cultures and their identity and their background. We've got to keep in mind the bigger picture and the life skills that we teach in children. Um, creativity needs to be in there. The self-awareness needs to be in there. And, and you mentioned a little bit earlier on that non-traditional games are a really good vehicle for that. W would that sort of package where teachers want to be looking at to move forwards and, and try and put this kind of stuff into practice? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I want... I mean, I want teachers to be able to have this this authority to feel like they have the support to be creative in these spaces and make professional yeah. decisions. And and I really feel for teachers at times because I feel like we get dished a really hard deal. You know, like Alan was talking there, we know what we do. We have we are always criticised uh, from an external body, and they and people come in hard because they think that they know how to teach because they all went to school. So therefore, they all get it and they all understand and they all want to comment on that. And there's a lot of new initiatives that get thrown our way all the time. So we have new tick boxes that we have to meet. We have expectations. We have really, really overbearing assessments at times. Um, and we are also trying to advocate for our profession. So I, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I am a teacher. Um, I was a teacher in a school. I'm now a teacher at a university. And I'm part of this professional organization. So I get it. I get the struggle. Um, and But I don't want to dwell on that struggle. And I think that, you know, as a teacher, you can... I think definitely you summarized it in the fact that teachers need to be critically conscious to this, to their role, to their, their responsibility of the profession, um, but also know where to go for help so they don't feel like they are isolated or they don't feel like they have to, you know, keep, keep doing what they've done for a long period of time. If they get this wee spark of joy and energy and they want to recreate something, um, then podcasts like this, uh, international connections, groups, organizations that all support good practice, I think are, are, are fabulous to tap into to build that, that wee basket of knowledge. Yeah, and I think that, that kind of sounding board and support network is so important and, and so often... Uh, maybe not undervalued, but underestimated by teachers and by schools. You know, you, you do often see schools that operate as their own island. And, and you would mm. imagine and you would think by going into a school sometimes that no other schools exist in the whole world. 
and, and that <laughs> all the problems only occur at that one school. And it's obviously never the case. And, and I think by opening things up like this, like you say, with podcast discussions, written pieces, research, you know, you, you've said yourself, you've been there and done it in a school. And now you're in a position where you, you're taking more of a bird's eye view and giving an overview to allow teachers to be more empowered and make changes. And I think together with partnerships like that, we can, uh, we can only evolve and, and change and embrace the change and move forward positively. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, Lewis. I completely agree. Uh, I think you've summarized that really, really well. <laughs> Well, we're going we're gonna to start winding it down a little bit now, Susie. Um, I know it's okay. getting on a bit in New Zealand. So we, we, we ask a few quick fire questions at the end um, okay. just to try and tap into your knowledge a little bit and, and, and learn a little bit more about you. So to start with, um, you know, Alan and I are readers. We, we do read quite a lot, maybe not as much in the last couple of weeks as we have done recently with moving around the world. But what, what book are you reading at the minute and, and would it be one that you recommend? Um, at the moment, I'm reading a book called The Divide, uh, it's by Jason Hickel. It's about global inequality. And I know that seems really left field, but um, these, things, these things really affect education. So th this book's all about poverty and capitalism and how the world works uh, in an economic sense. And I really like reading outside of my learning area. So a lot of what I do for work is inside my learning area. And so when I read for pleasure, I try and push myself in areas that I don't have expertise in. And, and one of them is about economics and, and money and how the world runs in those regards. And I'm learning a lot in terms of poverty and, and, and capitalism and some new ideas, but yeah, so The Divide by Jason Hickel is what I'm reading. Nerd. Oh, and, and, I'm such and, a nerd. I'm listening to myself and I'm like, it's Saturday night here in New Zealand <laughs> and I'm talking about global inequalities. Oh, I'm so sorry. Listeners, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. It, it's, yeah. uh... <laughs> The, uh, the, the, the thing with that is, though, you know, you make a good point that you, you try and read outside your, your, your sphere of knowledge and, and professionalism. Um, and you always find something that interlinks, don't you? You find a concept or something within that that, that you, you, you can apply or that has some kind of, of link in there. And I don't imagine that you'll be getting that book out or after we finish here on a Saturday night. I'm sure you'll be cracking open a few more beers. Nah, but... <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a few more beers. I'm a few beers down already and I'm looking forward to, to finishing off the six pack. We'll, 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 we'll be quick. We'll Wait, be quick, Susie. We've got more quick fires. Give me a few <laughs> more quick fires. Two more. Susie, what, um, what, what's the one recommendation that you'd give an aspiring teacher, you know, whether it be in PE or any field? Uh, wow, an aspiring teacher or a lead or like a teacher leader? A dancer? What are we going what, what, a dancer? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> a, leader, a leader or teacher, somebody who's new to a profession who really wants to make an impact and, and, and get better. Okay. Uh, I think I would probably say acknowledge the privilege of being a teacher and a leader. Um, it, it's, a it's a real privilege to be in that position. It's a privilege to be a teacher. You, you are in front of many growing humans and learning humans, and you should acknowledge that privilege, uh, acknowledge your influence, and acknowledge the shaping of others' minds in terms of an educational experience. Um, so don't be arrogant in that leadership or that teaching. Carry that into every meeting, every opportunity, and every decision that you make. And, and I think that we really do need to acknowledge our privilege. Lovely. Alan? 
Yeah, one of my favourites, Susie. Which three leaders, dead or alive, would you like to go out for a meal with? Okay. Um, can I have more than three? Do I, I've got I, you on. <laughs> oh, yes. I love this because, I, I, I mean, it, it's great. I love taking over the podcast where you just change the rules <laughs> at the last minute. Okay, I'm going number one would have to be um, Simone de Beauvoir, who's a French feminist theorist and philosopher. Um, so she was just awesome and hated the system and just did some great stuff for feminist theory and, and women. So shout out to her. Um, I would go... Uh, Harriet Tubman, who was an American political activist, uh, born into slavery and smuggled and rescued enslaved people in the late 1800s. You can kind of see, you can kind of see I like to <laughs> F the system a bit, eh? This is like, okay, uh, more people, probably Pierre de Coubertin, who was the uh, founder of the modern Olympic Games. Uh, I would ask him lots of questions about, is he still a chauvinist? Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but mostly around, mostly around his philosophical theory because he's, he, he had some really cool ideas, really cool ideas, and I think he was well ahead of his time. Um, now, because there might be some English listeners, Ian Wright, because I support Arsenal, and I feel like they're not doing so well right now, but Ian Wright was... Best Arsenal player, in my humble opinion, uh, of all time. Uh, and he would be welcome at the table. Uh, probably, uh, can I have two more? Oh, no, I've, maybe... I've got you on, Susie. Crack on. Bethany, okay, I'm cracking on. Bethany Hamilton, who's a surfer. Uh, she's an American surfer, and she's kick-ass, and she lost her arm in a, in a shark accident, and she rips like there's no other. So I love her. And maybe the whole crew of Def Leppard, but the original ones, not that like Sheffield, her. That's where we're from. That's, that's our hometown. <laughs> and look, at me, look at me connecting <laughs> the hosts. Like, come on. Awesome. <laughs> that's my that's my dinner party. That's my dinner party. I'm excited. Which song is it, Suze? Is it? Oh, sugar for sure. But that's oh. only because when I uh, it well, it kind of relates to university and and maybe there was a bit of spraying of champagne at the time. So we, I mean, we don't need to go into those stories. I've just I've just kept a very professional outlook for the whole podcast. I feel like I can't. <laughs> Can't end on a flippant story. <laughs> we'll line that one up for next time then, Susie. <laughs> Susie, actually, thanks, yeah. thanks so much for coming on and sharing your, your opinions and your thoughts, your perceptions and, and your, your sheer enthusiasm for everything Def Leppard as well as uh, educational <laughs> and physical activity based. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, it, yeah, really, really cool to be on here. So thank you. Cool. Thanks, Thank Susie. You. Guys, search Infinite Leaders Live. Again, YouTube, Instagram, and all major pod uh, podcast platforms. We're also at theinfinitelearners.com. And please do click subscribe, click like, help us get our message out there and to share wonderful tips and advice from people such as Susie. And we thoroughly enjoyed uh, today's episode. Thanks very much, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Yeah.